Hello, this is Randy Starkey, pastor of Mariposa Baptist Church. I want to thank you for taking the time to listen to another message from the Word of God. We hope that it will be a challenge and encouragement to you. If you are not a part of a local church, we would love to have you come and gather with us. We meet together every Sunday morning at 9.30 for Bible study and 10.30 for our worship service. We also meet again on Wednesday evenings at 7 o'clock for prayer and Bible study together. Again, we would love to have you come and join together with our body of believers to grow in your faith. We are located at 1251 Mariposa Road, Stanley, North Carolina, zip code 28164. Again, that's 1251 Mariposa Road, Stanley, North Carolina. You can also go to our website to find out more information at www.mariposabc.org. And now, a message from God's Word. Let's now turn our attention to Acts chapter 2. We continue our time here, and we've seen recently that, that the event of the coming of the Spirit of God as he promised in the beginning of Acts chapter 2. In the continuation of that story, we read beginning in verse 14. Well, let me, let me start with 13 to get the setting. But in response to that event, it says, But others mocking said they are filled with new wine. So now in 14, it says, Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you. And give ear to my words, for these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy." And I will show wonders in, he in the heavens above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Father, we ask in these moments as we consider your word given to us that you would illuminate our hearts and our minds. Father, we don't want this just to be uh, a, a habitual exercise. We don't want this just to be something academic. Nor would, do we want this to just be something emotional. Father, we want the power of the Spirit to work in our hearts and our minds to, to move us in the way that would bring glory to you and would sanctify us. And so, Father, speak, we pray, through your word, to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Have you ever personally been mocked? Have you ever experienced that? Somebody mocking you? Now, if you ever lived through childhood, which you all did, then you've probably experienced at some point or another somebody mocking you. If you have siblings, most certainly you've experienced being mocked in some way or another. But obviously, that's not what we have in mind as we consider the question of what it means to be mocked. The Bible tells us in this event, this great event that we call the, the coming of the Spirit, we call Pentecost because it took place 
at the festival there, that in response to what the Spirit was doing in the, in the lives of this, this 120 and then, of course, reaching outward, that the response of some of those in the crowd was that they mocked them and they said, well, pfft, these guys are drunk. They're crazy. Look what's going on. Now, consider the question, have you ever been mocked? When it relates to your faith, what you believe, in light of the world in which we live in, have you ever faced a situation where you were made fun of, belittled, considered ignorant, or maybe even crazy because of the kinds of the things that you say that you believe? So have you ever been faced with a situation that would call for some form of defense of what you say is in fact true? That's what was happening on this day. In the midst of the circumstances, as, as these believers were filled with the Holy Spirit, God was moving, and in response, the world at large, those who had not been affected immediately by the coming of the Spirit because they were not believers in Christ, they saw what was happening and they drew some conclusions based on their observation. They didn't have the mind of the Spirit driving them. They were merely looking and trying to, to come to some conclusion of what they were seeing. And the best they could come to was, well, these people must be drunk. Because they were hearing them speak in, in many different languages around them. And obviously, if you spoke a particular language and you heard others speaking in a language that you didn't speak, it would sound strange. So they thought they were drunk. Well, Peter responds to this, it tells us. He stands along with the, the rest of the apostles, and he addresses this crowd. Now, not just the crowd of mockers, all of them, but most certainly the mockers, those who were arguing that what was taking place was something akin to insanity, craziness, drunkenness. But notice how he responds. Peter doesn't stand up and say, how dare you? act that way? How dare you say that about us? We're God's people. We're Christians. Of course, they weren't called Christians yet, but you know what I mean. So how dare you say that to me? No, it's not what he did. And I say that merely because we are somewhat wired in the midst of the world in which we live as the world presses into us in many different ways, whether in, in, a, in our small sphere of of impact as we deal with the people we deal with and how they might respond to our faith, or whether it's in the larger narrative of the world as we look at national news and things like that. We, we hear what people say and how they respond to the things that we believe, and we become somewhat irate, incensed about the fact that they would say these kinds of things about us. And often our response, maybe not you, I don't know, maybe not you, but often many of us respond with an attitude of more, how dare you say that about us? Now, I know that comes from a deep place of knowing what truth is and wanting to, in some sense, defend God, but we realize we don't have to defend God, but we are to give a defense. And that's exactly what Peter does, and he shows us the way in which a defense of the moving of God in our midst 
should often look like. He doesn't respond in defensiveness, but rather he responds with the Word of God. He makes an explanation. He first says these people are not drunk, as you suppose, as you would observe and reason because it looks strange. His first argument of defense is, is a very rubber-meets-the-road argument. Guys, it's, it's only 9 o'clock in the morning. They haven't, we haven't began drinking yet. So, obviously, that's not a good rational conclusion. So, he gives a rubber-meets-the-road argument, but that's not really what he bases his defense upon. His defense is based on what he then says in verse 16 when he says, but this is what was uttered by the prophet Joel. So, Peter then seeks to depend upon God's revelation to make a defense for what was going on. And as such, I would argue that this is something that we must do as well. Not in defensiveness and anger. Yes, I realize that some of the things we hear, some of the crazy things that that are taking place in our culture, they they do anger us. And I'm not saying they shouldn't. We should be angry with angry with righteous anger, but how we respond to those might need to look different because it is not your and my, my and your job to argue people to truth. We are to give a defense, but it's not to be based upon our ability to, to place out a good argument or, or, or make ourselves look like some measure of authority. Our Defense is to be dependent upon the power of the Word of God. And here's the thing, and I will throw myself in this group as I indict all of us, I don't think we really believe that there's power in the Word. I I know we say these things, we've learned to, to say these things about the power of the Word of God and the power of the moving of the Holy Spirit, but I question sometimes, do we really believe that God is moving and working through the means that He's told us He would, through His Spirit and through His Word. And those always working together. What about right now? Is God's Spirit present and moving in conjunction with the, the means of the Word of God in our lives? Because if that's true, then it should drive us in some particular ways and I think this text will remind us of that. Now, Peter, as I'm sure in this moment, I can't even imagine, and it's not really my goal to get into the mind of Peter and try to recreate a circumstance. It's not the point of God's revelation. But nevertheless, I think about this, and this is a crowd of people who were just days before confused and not knowing what's going on, and then suddenly the power of the Spirit moves upon them. They heard that, that Jesus had promised the power of the Spirit's going to come upon you and you'll be my witnesses right here and reaching to the ends of the earth. They had heard this, but they just heard it. I mean, sure, they heard it from Jesus, but they heard a lot of things from Jesus that they kind of doubted. Don't you recall that? And so as human beings, I can imagine they were confused and they were somewhat skeptical maybe even in their humanity. But then suddenly the Spirit arrives and something outside beyond of themselves was taking place. God was moving. 
And so Peter then boldly, the one who had previously denied Christ publicly, now is boldly standing publicly and, and declaring the Word of God. And it's later, much later in his life, that Peter then, in writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says this in 1 Peter chapter 3, But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. Be ready to give a defense to anyone who asks. Now, I'm going to take that a little further. I don't think Peter merely has in mind somebody who walks up to you and says, hey, why do you believe in Jesus? Now, most certainly includes that, but I think it means a lot more, includes a lot more. That anyone who, by action or other words, raises a question about what we believe, that would be a person to whom we are to make a defense. And whether that's to a friend, a family member, whether that's in a, a bigger setting, a greater setting uh, in your life, it doesn't matter, but we are to provide a defense. But we must remember that our defense of our belief is not based in rational, earthly logic. As I often say, the gospel is not illogical, but it's beyond logic. It's not unreasonable, but it is beyond reason. Therefore, human reason alone, our personalities, our, our good explanations are not the power of God. It is His Word that is the power of God. And therefore, our defense should, in a sense, be an exegesis of Scripture, which then would require something of us prior, and that would be that you and I would be students of the Word, that we would know the Word of God, that we would strive to understand it more, more deeply, not on our own, but with the power of the Spirit working in us to do that very thing. God has promised us that, that He would illuminate His Word to our hearts and our minds as believers in Christ. We're not left to ourselves. This isn't about you mustering up your, your emotions and your attitude to, to do the right thing. Well, that's fine, but it's not dependent upon that. Our hope, our dependence is upon the moving of God in our lives through the power of the Holy Spirit based upon the word that He has given us. That leads us then to Peter's exegesis. Now, today we will consider basically Peter's introduction. It is in verses 22 and following that Peter then preaches what we would consider to be the first Christian sermon that was preached, and we'll give attention to that on another day. But I want us to look to this particular introduction that he declares. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And then Peter quotes from Joel chapter 2 as the basis of the experience of what was going on. Again, would it make 
sense to everyone? Maybe, maybe not, but that's not the point. The point is that we've been given a task, given to us by our master. He has told us how we are to go about things, and it is based in his word. And so Peter, beginning, does that very thing. He stands and declares the word of God. He didn't have the New Testament, obviously. It hadn't been written yet, but he had a Bible, and it was God's word to his people, and so he then declares it, and he begins by saying, and in these last days it shall be, God declares. So the first thing that Peter addresses is this statement considering the last days. Now, this is a question that, that some, sometimes is misunderstood uh, in our present day uh, in terminology and how we are supposed to understand this. But this is something I think is important for us to get down in order to rightly understand other texts as we read through the New Testament. And that is that we are living in the last days. Peter was living in the last days. Now, obviously, that's been a long period of time, but it is nevertheless the reality of the Bible grant, uh, reveals to us is that the last days began long ago. And so the question that's raised, well, what is the distinction of of these last days? What's the point of calling it last days if it's not what we often would think of the last days? Because when we hear things like that, we'll see events happen in our world, and then we'll hear, you know, the, the Internet's lit up with suddenly there's a great natural disaster, right? And then the Internet gets lit up with, oh, it's going to happen. We're, we are in the last days. I'm like, yeah, you're right about that. We've been in the last days for quite some time. But I understand what people are looking to. They're, they're looking for something that's going to say and communicate in some way that like we're, we're at the last of the last of the last days, maybe. But the way the Bible uses this idea of the last days, I think is important for us to understand because it's indicative of the lives that you and I should expect to live here in this age during this particular period that is marked out particularly by the coming of our Savior. When Jesus came on the scene and he declared that the kingdom was here, this was the beginning of the last days. The writer of Hebrews reminds us of that as well. And he writes, long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. Paul later writes concerning this this idea of the last days. But understand this, in the last days. When was this? Well, this was from the point that Peter stood and preached, we know all the way up to this very day, but understand this, that during the last days, in the last day, there will come times of difficulty. Is, Pete, is Paul speaking of at the very end? No, he's saying during the duration of the last days, this is going to be indicative of this era. There will come difficult times of difficulty for people who will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people. These are not things that we are to look to and then suddenly go, 
oh, Jesus must be coming back tomorrow. I pray he does. And, and Jesus can come back when the Father says, go. And that's not up to me or you or circumstances of this world. But when we read these things, this is what Paul teaches us, that the, the last days are marked out in particular ways. And this is the kind of thing that, that Peter could expect, that Paul could expect, that 10th century Christians could expect, that 20th and 21st century Christians can expect. So when we see these things, we should understand this is exactly what we should expect because these are indicative of this period that the Bible marks out as the last days. John as well addresses uh, this concept. Now he uses a different terminology, but it's in essence the very same thing that he's speaking of when he says in 1 John chapter 2, children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. It's a little bit of what we call circular reasoning there, but the point is very clear that Jesus declared what the last days or what John here calls the last hour would look like. John seemed to think that in his day it was already the last hour. This is a really long hour, isn't it? This is a concept to help us understand what should be expected in the midst of this period of time. Well, while Peter doesn't go into it on in that perspective, we see in the rest of Scripture, number one, that we know that in the last days that, that God has declared Himself by way of Jesus Christ. I like to say it this way, with all the words that God spoke, He spoke His loudest word in Jesus. And I love the way the Bible seeks to make that, that, that visual illustration to us in the terminology it uses. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and God said... God spoke, let there be, and then there was creation. But then when we get to the New Testament, in like manner, I think John likely reading Genesis, he says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was, was God. And then he says in verse 14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. In essence, he goes on in verse 18, to let us know that Jesus has, is the revealer of God. God spoke through the person of Jesus Christ. And that's what the writer of Hebrew was saying. That God spoke in many ways in, in the Old, Old Testament, in the prior era, in the former days, through the prophets, at various times and in various ways. But in these last days, He's been way clearer. He's been much more magnificent in His, in his voice because He has spoken to us through His Son. And in these last days, we not only understand that we have the clarity of the voice of God in the person of Jesus Christ, but we can expect a great deal of difficulty. This is not going to be an easy task. Nobody has ever, well, no, many people have. The Bible never promised anyone that if you come to Jesus, your life will be better. Now, I realize we hear that message out there. But the Bible nowhere says that. Now, there's an internal sense in which it's way better. There's hope, there's expectation, there's joy that, that exceeds circumstances. But as far as life in this age, in these last days, the Bible promises the very opposite. For those who will pursue Christ, who will live for Him, 
you can expect difficulty. In fact, sometimes uh, I want to, even for myself, question, you know, how should we measure the extent to which we are living our lives for Christ? I don't know if this is fair to even say. I'm going to say it, but it might be something for us to consider. How much difficulty do we face because of our faith? Not because of our personality, not because of the dumb decisions we might make or the mistakes we make, but because of our faith. How much difficulty do we face? Because indicative of the last days, according to the Word of God, is that there will be times of difficulty. Now, some of you parents they say, oh yeah, we faced it. We, 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 you heard that one statement that Paul said, right? In the last days, they'll become disobedient to parents, right? You're, you're like, oh yeah, I faced it, been there. But you know what I mean. How much have you faced difficulty because of your faith? Now, that's not to say that that's the way we should measure your spirituality. But it is legitimate to ask that question. Because it might be that we don't face difficulty because outside of these walls, we're not really speaking about our faith. We're not really seeking to, to defend what we believe to those who might need to hear it. So in Peter's introduction, he first speaks of this particular duration of time, the last days. But here's what Peter says about that. He declares a particular distinction. He says, in the last days it shall be, God declares. And here's the distinction that Peter brings out. Because it was pertinent to the circumstance that was at hand. That I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Now, if you are a marker in your Bible, the, the, the specific emphasis that you want to mark there is the word all. There's the distinctive word. It wasn't that God had never poured out His Spirit before. We can read about it in the Old Testament. God poured out His Spirit. He did great things. He worked through particular individuals at particular times. As the writer of Hebrews reminds us, in, in times past, in many ways, at many times, God spoke, and He did so through the power of the Spirit. So God, this wasn't new that God was pouring out His Spirit. But what was new, what was distinct, was that God was pouring out His Spirit on all flesh. Now, don't misunderstand that, because that does not mean, and context will bear this out, it does not mean that every single human being alive received the Spirit. The point here, and it gets made clear in the process of Acts, and then, of course, in many other places in the New Testament, is the distinction between the old and the new, that God was no longer making particular distinctions that were in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, we find that God particularly worked through a particular people. It was His mission and His plan to reveal Himself to and through Israel to the nations. That was the goal. That was the plan. Now, we often say it this way, that Israel failed. And in a very real way, they did. Israel was, was turned inward. They were about their people. They were, they were somewhat hesitant to take the gospel to foreigners. You think of the book of Jonah when you think of that, right? And Jonah was called to go outside of Israel to be a missionary to a foreign land, and he didn't like that very much. He fought it, he lost, he did it, and he still didn't like it, and he didn't like what God did. This was God's plan from the beginning that the descendants of Abraham 
would bless the nations, not just one nation, but God had chose this nation to be the revealer of His glory. And the way that would happen would be by proclamation of the glory of God and by living distinctive from the rest of the world. Now, Israel did fail in that extent. They were very selfish in their God. They were hesitant to reveal and declare their God to the nation. So God did something about that. It's kind of funny how God operates providentially, right? Now, obviously, they deserved it, but God used it. He sent them out. <laughs> he took them out of Israel physically and put them in foreign nations where they would have to live as His people, thus declaring His glory to them. But even in that sense, it's not what Peter's talking about. The distinction here is that God's pouring out of the Spirit would no longer be amongst a singular particular people, but among all peoples. This is good news for you and I today because it means that God pours out His Spirit on you and me, on all flesh, all nations. And he says that, that, that God would do this, and continuing, he says, to your sons and your daughters will prophesy, your young men, your old men will see visions and dreams on male servants and female servants. He would pour out His Spirit, and they shall prophesy. And there's a couple of things that are, that are particularly important in this. Number one, the all, the fact that God was doing this. This is God's movement as a result of what Christ did and His resurrection, which we will celebrate next week. But Paul later speaks on this, this issue in Galatians chapter 3, when he says, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ. Now, folks, I realize this verse gets misused a lot today by some. This is not to say that, that God doesn't see a difference between men and women, because He does. He created us that way distinctively, particularly. We talked about that re recently, that His image, His imaging forth of His glory was indicative of male and female. It's important that those distinctions are clear. But the point that, Paul, that, that Peter is, is revealing to us in this sermon and what Paul later then confirms is that God is not showing preference for a man or a woman or uh, an American or a, a China, Chinaman or an African or whatever. He's not showing a preference that all of them would be used for His glory to declare His goodness and His grace. So every single one of us, regardless of our, our background, re regardless of our status, regardless of our race, regardless of the extent of our sin, God will powerfully move and work in and through His people of all kinds to accomplish His purpose. Now, we often look at this from a distance, don't we? I mean, think about it. We read the stories about the moving of God's Spirit, right? I mean, you probably read some this week. You've read a story, and you're like, wow, that's really moving. It's it, because stories are written that way. They're sensational. But here's the reality. You can read those stories and praise God for all these wonderful testimonies and things that we hear about, that people testify about. Praise God that they are, they are sharing God's glory through their stories. But understand this. You have a story. God's Spirit is here. It isn't, you say, well, I don't feel it. Well, He's still here. 
whether you feel it or not, God is moving here today in your heart. If you are a Christian, God is moving. If we are immovable, it's not because God isn't at work. Because from the day that Peter stood and declared this sermon, the reality and the truth is that God's Spirit is working in the midst of all His people. It doesn't matter what kind of skills you have. It doesn't matter how bold you are, whether you're extrovert or introvert, or, or you can put any kind of characteristic on there you want to. God's Spirit is moving. Do you believe that? Do you believe that God's Spirit is alive and well today? Or do we just kind of go through the motions and say the right things? Because here's the thing, our hope is on the Spirit of God moving. Our hope, your hope is on the Spirit of God, not on your ideas or your personality or your gifts. It is on the Spirit of God. And here's the thing, He's moving. He's working. If we or you or we don't see that, there might be a reason beyond the fact that God isn't working because He is. But he goes on and he says, in a particular way, how God would be working in the prophesying, in the proclamation of His Word. And be, be reminded that back in Acts chapter 1, that's exactly the express reason for which God was pouring out His Spirit. It wasn't to, 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 to work miracles for Peter and Paul and things we read about in Acts. It was to proclaim. It was to proclaim the Word of God. In fact, it's exactly what we're going to see in the stories of Acts. I think I've already mentioned it to you that every time we see a miracle, the miracle is merely the means to the point. And the point is always the proclamation of the message. But this day that he mentions, and the day comes up at the very end in verse 20, this great and magnificent day. But what he says about that in verse 19, he says, I will show wonders. The I here is God, not Joel, it's God. I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor and smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. Now, we don't have time to, to talk through all that could be said about this imagery, this, this apocalyptic language that's used by Joel and repeated by Peter. But here's the couple of things that we know. Uh, we often look at these kinds of things as, as natural disasters or particular cosmic events particularly that we're looking for. So we're looking to the sun, and we're looking up at the sun and going, is it dark? Is it dark? And we're looking at the moon going, is, is it red yet? Of course, I'll never know that because I'm colorblind. But is it red? We're looking for that. And I don't think that's what is intended here. The language... Now, will that, can that be the case? Well, sure, God can do and end things however He so desires. I always question the fact that God doesn't, if the sun does go dark, I guess it would be like a millisecond before we're all dead because we'd all freeze immediately. But nevertheless, the point is, if you go to the Old Testament and read the language of the Old Testament, this, this is not foreign. These, this language is indicative to judgment. This is the reality, and, and what, what God says is that in the last days, so beginning 
from the time Peter stood up and preached this message, continuing even today up until the final, what's referenced here, day of the Lord, when Christ returns and consummates all things. Before that time, God will be showing wonders in the heavens and signs on the earth. God is going to be moving in powerful and particular ways. Again, you can go and do your study on the, the particulars of blood, fire, vapor, and smoke. I don't think it's about massive, merely about massive death, forest fires in California, and eruption of volcanoes. Though they might play into it somewhere, but I don't think that's what we're supposed to be looking for. The language is language of God's judgment. And so we know before the great day of the Lord that God is going to be working in marvelous and terrible ways now, and He is. So in the last days, during the course of the last days, before the day of the Lord, not necessarily the moment before, but everything up before that day, this would be what God would be doing, showing wonders in heavens above and signs on earth below. But not just natural things, but working through the power of the Spirit. God will show wonders and signs, and He has, and He continues to. This is indicative of the last days. But understand that God's revelation during this time is revealed to us to be two-sided. In fact, I think that's why Peter changes a word here. Because if you go back to Joel and you read this passage, it actually says, before the day of the Lord comes, that great and terrible or awesome day. That's what Joel says. Peter changes that word under the inspiration of the Spirit, mind you, and he says that great and magnificent day. So which is it? Is it a terrible day or is it a magnificent day? And I think the, the reality is that during this time, leading up until the consummation of all things, when Christ comes again, that the wonders that God would reveal, the ways in which God would reveal Himself in this age would be two-sided. They would be judgment and salvation. These wonders would lead to this. In fact, again, as we read through Acts, we're going to see this borne out that when the, when the gospel is proclaimed, there is always two responses. And mind you, there are only two responses possible, and that is for or against. We don't get to just check out and say, well, I'm going to kind of stay on the line and kind of walk the fence. I'm not really going to go for it, but I'm not going to go against it. I just want to be neutral. There's not a place for that. You either are for the gospel or you are against it. And you can be nicely against it, but nevertheless, for or against. So when the gospel is proclaimed, when the power of the Spirit is moving through the proclamation of the gospel, God will work in miraculous and marvelous ways to two ends. And those ends are judgment for the wicked and salvation for the repentant. Now, the moment I say judgment for the wicked, there's an imagery that comes up in our mind, that word wicked. We, we kind of have it defined in our day in a particular way. We think of Hollywood wicked. Hollywood has really helped us to determine what wicked is, right? You know, real or unreal. We get this picture of what wicked is. And then there are certain realities where we all agree on wickedness, like serial killers. That's wickedness, right? But that's, the Bible includes that kind of stuff, but it goes way beyond that because the wicked is anyone who is unrepentant. The wicked are anyone who do not believe the gospel. 
which is heart-wrenching for me and should be for all of us, that my nice neighbor down the road who doesn't believe the gospel is in this category. The Bible says that if he remains in unbelief, then he will be judged with the wicked. So who are the wicked? Anyone who denies the truth of the gospel. Do you know any wicked people? Now, I know this would not be politically correct today to call people wicked. But that's what the Bible is trying. It uses this language that, to compel us to think about these things in the gravity of which they should be thought about. That people who do not believe are in the category of wicked. And so therefore, we, when we think about wicked things in our minds, it's really bad. And guess what? For those who continue in unbelief, it's really, really bad. And we should feel that way. We, we often want to just smile at them and, and be glad that they're nice people and then let them go to hell. Who cares? Because it doesn't really affect us. Why are we not affected by the reality that our friends and our neighbors and even strangers around us who are, in our view, good people will die without Christ if we don't tell them. Because Peter concludes this with a great message of which he's going to then unpack in this sermon. Verse 21, the declaration that this leads up, that God in these last days is powerfully moving through the work of the Spirit in a miraculous and amazing ways leading up to that great and final day when Christ comes again. And this is the end to which He is doing what He's doing. And it shall come to pass that everyone, there, that word is important. If you're going to highlight a word, that's the word to highlight. It goes with the all, the pouring out on all flesh. And that, that it will come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Everyone, regardless of your background, regardless of your status, regardless of your personality, regardless of your skills, regardless of your race, regardless of your culture, regardless of the extent of your sin, no matter how wicked you were, everyone that calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now this would require and does in time require, what does that mean? Everyone who calls upon, does it just mean that everyone at some moment in their life who says, Jesus, that that saves them? No, we know that's not what it means to call upon the name of the Lord. There's, there's content to that, that the Bible reveals to us in the gospel. And we must Think upon that as well, but we must begin here that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That means, and I have people in my mind right now that in my humanity, I think are beyond salvation. Isn't that terrible? Do you have people like that? Do you, you think about it and you just think, oh, they, they'll never believe. I can think of people. It's not right of me because it's a denial of the truth right here that if God by His power calls upon a heart to believe that God has that power to change them 
It doesn't matter how wicked they are. Therefore, in my humanity, in my finite ability to know, it is my passion, it is my responsibility to go and tell everyone. Because everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That includes every person that sits in this room today. If you sit here as a believer in the Lord today, it's because there was a day when God mightily moved in your heart. It might not have been some kind of visible, miraculous revelation, but He most certainly revealed in you the reality of your sin and His goodness and His glory and your need for Him. He showed you that in some way or another And you called upon the name of the Lord. You cast everything upon Him. You trusted in Him because you knew He was the only one who could make a difference in your life. Paul, in the book of Romans, in the midst of some of the most difficult arguments over the gospel, Romans chapter 9 and 10 and 11, in the middle of that, 9 and 11, which are two of the most difficult chapters in the Bible to figure out. In the middle of that, he declares this. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, and might I add, between American or African or Haitian or black or white or brown or rich or poor or popular or introvert or extrovert. There is no distinction, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing His riches on all who call on Him." And then most of us at some point in our lives in the church, if you've been in, in church any time, have learned Romans 10, 13. So say it with me. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Do you believe that? What is your hope in? As you fulfill your calling as a witness, a proclaimer of God's word, Enabled by the power of the Spirit that has been promised to you. Because if you're a Christian today, the Spirit dwells within you. You have the power of the Spirit. And the purpose of the power is proclamation. So do you believe that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved? Because the next question is really the revealer. Then who are you telling? Who are you telling that they need to call upon the name of the Lord? I pray that God will convict our hearts and that we will find every way. It's not about, I'm not saying there are things that we as a corporate body can think through and do specifically for this purpose. But long before there's ever any kind of organized plan, there's you. There doesn't have to be a church organized plan for evangelism to proclaim the gospel and win people to Christ because there's you. You are the greatest asset to this church for the purpose of the mission. You've been called not by me but by God to be a witness for Him. Not to make a choice whether you're going to be a witness or not, but that's what you were saved for and empowered for, to be a witness. Who are you telling, hey, 
Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And that includes you. I pray that God will not allow us to not be obedient to this call. And I pray that you as well will pray for yourself and for one another, that God would convict us of our complacency when it comes to the very priority of our purpose, and that is to be witnesses for Him here and to the ends of the earth. Let's pray. Father, thank You so much for the Word. And I simply ask, Lord, that You would, in Your grace, overwhelm our hearts, convict us, Lord. Do not let us be indifferent. Make us faithful followers of our Lord. Open our eyes to truly believe the power of the Spirit at work through the Word, even when that Word comes from our feeble lips. Even when those words come from our mixed-up expression because we don't know a whole lot, but that it's not about us. May we be faithful, even if we look like fools. May we be faithful to declare that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And Father, while it is often assumed in this very place, because we are few and we know each other, I, I pray if there is anyone here today that has merely walked the religious road but has never called upon the name of the Lord for salvation, I pray that you would reveal that to their hearts today and do not let them leave this place without repenting and believing the gospel. Thank you, Lord, that our hope is in you. Knowing that you will be faithful to fulfill all your promises. Continue to work in us and through us for your glory in this place. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.